because it's perfectionism, mm. it's analyzing, it's reflecting, it's being critical. Those things are really helpful for you in preparation and it's what gets in the way for performance. What up everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Max McCoy and this is Looking Up. If you know me, if you know my work, you know I come from sports. Sports is my background and so today I'm joined by Brian Levinson. He is a sports psychologist and kind of a mental performance training coach. He just wrote a book, Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Thrive in Preparation and Performance. And we talk all about his book. We talk about the distinction between how we prepare and the mindset we use to prepare and the mindset we use to perform and how they're actually very different things and how we can't bring our performance mind into our preparation and how we can't bring our preparation mind into our performance. It's pretty interesting. And coming from sports, I like to use sports as a metaphor. You know, I'm not playing anymore. I'm not playing basketball anymore, but I perform for, or I, <laughs> I prepare for my podcasts as if I'm preparing for a game. And I kind of treat my career as kind of I did with my basketball career. And so there's very, there's so much overlaps between sports and business and sports and creativity and sports and anything. And so I love having these kind of conversations. Brian and I talk about sports. We talk about his work. We talk about how he got to where he is today, working with some of the top athletes in the world. Uh, and this was a pretty cool talk. So I hope you enjoy it. If you're into sports, if you're into psychology, if you're into performance, uh, you'll like it. And uh, yeah, enjoy my, my talk with the new author of Shift Your Mind, Brian Levinson. All right, Brian, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited, super like-minded, so I appreciate your time. Uh, give me a basketball head to chat with. And uh, I don't know where this conversation will go. And it, you know, there's the term inside baseball for people that are talking the same lingo. I apologize in advance if we get any inside basketball lingo going on here. <laughs> I can talk basketball all day, every day. It's the sport that um, is easiest for me to talk with and probably the sport that I understand best because it's not that complicated. I love it. Um, why don't you give me like a brief overview, just some context as to like who you are for the listeners, you know, who you are and, and how you got into this realm of mental performance, psychology, you know, what do you do and how'd you get here? When I think about who I am, I'll, I'll give you like what I do, but I think about values. Like I'm somebody who's curious. I care deeply about humanity and the world. I am a father of two. I'm happily married. Uh, I'm someone who thinks deeply about how I'm showing up and what kind of impact I can make in this world. Um, so that that's how I think about who I am. I'm still a work in progress and trying to figure myself out, probably just like a lot of people that are listening to this podcast. Um, but I'm born and raised outside the Washington DC area in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, and I got into sales after college and from there went and got my master's in sports psychology out West. And, uh, since then worked with a lot of athletes, sports teams as a mental performance coach. And along the way, I also started working in as, as an executive coach and love that work, love working with adults. And um, so I ended up going back to school again to Georgetown for executive coaching. And uh, yeah, along the way, podcaster, I created my own uh, personality assessment that we use with our clients. I created a company where we work with organizations and coach their people and also train their people. It's called Strong Skills. And I got a book that's coming out. Uh, it's called Shift Your Mind. So I'm entrepreneurial. I'm somebody who is always looking to create and innovate. And I care deeply about connecting with people and, and learning and growing and developing. Uh, so I think that's kind of who I am in a yeah. quick synopsis. Yeah. And you, uh, 
I, I'm passionate. I mean, it's like my, I hate to like plug this, but it's my Instagram bio that I'm fascinated by psychology and performance. As lame as that sounds, but it's so true because uh, as I evolved out of the sports world, I learned more about psychology, learned more about myself, learned more about kind of the role I wanted to play in the world and who I wanted to be. And then I looked back on my playing career and thought, man, the the benefits I could have reaped from this kind of information was, you know, outstanding. And so I, like I said before this talk, kind of started my content creation journey in the sports performance world. What was it for you that kind of you know, you went to, uh, you got your master's in sports psychology. I know you've worked with athletes, professional level. Like, what was it about it? What was it about that for you that you thought this was like, this is important work. I'm going to dedicate some significant time and energy to this. What was it about performance and psychology for you? I think before that, I would even go to, I was lost out of college. Like a lost puppy is how I describe myself. <laughs> like, I majored in sociology. I minored in African-American studies and political science. And while my friends, I went to Syracuse University and my friends were mainly focused on going to Wall Street and working in finance. I knew that I wasn't interested in that. Um, I was always interested in people and how people navigate the world. And sociology was more of an interest in psychology. I, I think I just loved the dynamics of groups and, and, and how humans interacted with each other. But I was lost out of college. So I, as I was working in sales, I was really fortunate. I had lunch one day at the Cheesecake Factory, I probably ate too much there, but uh, with a woman named Julie Ellian, who my family knew growing up, you know, she was friends with my parents. She invited me to lunch and it was at a time in my life where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my career. And so I just met with anybody who I thought had something cool that they were doing and she offered and I said, yes, let's do it. Had lunch with her. It was the smoothest, most logical meeting I had with any of those people that I met with. And she felt pretty gung-ho that I could be good at this work. And ultimately the reason I got into it was because it combined two things that I knew I love spending time on. It, it combines sport, which, you know, I'm not, there's plenty of people in this world that love sports. It's easy to love. Like I don't find it to be hard to fall in love with like sports and music and acting. Okay, yeah, those things are, are easy to fall in love with. But I think the psychology piece is what actually drew me in. So um, I thought about being a scout or a coach, a basketball coach. But the psychology piece and the capacity to really help people is ultimately where I became intrigued. And I will tell you, Max, as I've done this work for about a decade, I don't really care what someone does for a living. I really don't. I don't really care what their title is. I care deeply about helping people get from where they are to where they want to go and spending time figuring out what they value and what their mission is and where do they want to go and how to create some processes and some intention around getting them there. And so my work's evolved to, I still work in sports plenty, but I do a lot of work in, in corporate and, uh, for me, I just want to work with lifelong learners who are curious and driven and ambitious. And, but, but that was it. I, it was a combination of sport and psychology and blending those two. And I was fortunate. I, it was one of the best decisions I made at a pretty young age. And I took a leap and went to grad school and I was able to hit the ground running. I was really fortunate. Julie mentored me throughout mm -hmm. that process. When I finished up grad school, nobody in my cohort in grad school had somebody that they were going to go work with when they graduated. Mm -hmm. So I'm also very privileged and fortunate that I had Julie and I really owe her 
so much. I mean, she introduced me to this field that I never even heard of and then uh, helped me along my journey as well. Before we get into like the the brass tacks of the sports psychology stuff that I'm interested in, and and as it relates to everything, it's not just sports psychology, it's more like performance psychology, which I'm fascinated by, but I also was uh, lost out of college, and I think it's super common, and it's like a big part of why I'm, I also feel like I just resonate with that story so much. What would you have said to Brian, or what what encouragement or advice you would you have given him at that time, maybe around the time he was starting to take meetings with anybody who could, just didn't know where to turn, didn't know where to go, didn't feel like the options available to him were realistic or aligned for him? What would you have said to him? It's a great question. Two things come to mind. One, I work with college athletes now at great universities. They're super smart. And I'm always amazed at often how clear they are on where they want to go. Yeah. For the ones that aren't, I say to them, it's okay. <laughs> like, you'll be okay. And um, you don't have to have it all figured out. And I think there's a benefit to not having it figured out because you get to try new things. And when you try new things, you get to learn and experiment. And from there, you can sort of find your path. And then the second piece that I think is important is when you're starting out, say yes. Just say yes to as many things as possible. And then once you establish yourself, then you need to learn how to say no to a lot of things. But I hear thought leaders often saying, you need to learn how to say no. You need to learn how to say no. Well, when you're starting, take a lunch meeting with anyone that will take a meeting with you. Take a coffee, um, you know, whatever you can do to learn about what is out there. Just say yes. And for me, I think that when I started my career, that's what I was big on is I'm just going to say yes to any opportunity um, so that now I can say no to things that I'm not energized by or I'm not that interested in. But I think too often we tell people to just say no to stuff. And I think the 22-year-old version of me, I just needed to say yes and just go learn and be curious and um, take advantage of that. Mm. And so I talked about like, yeah, the transition out of sport was difficult for me. <clears throat> and as you talk about these athletes you work with that don't know what they're going to do next, I can see, I can, you know, I, I think that's so common, you know, you, you invest so much into the sport and then when you transition out of it, uh, life's different and your identity shifts and there's all these uncertainties. So which aspects for you performance wise or kind of mental performance wise are the ones that kind of translate no matter what your craft is, if that makes sense, like are all the things kind of that you help your clients with are they things that can go from sports to business to whatever may come next is is that kind of the nature of mental performance training so let's break it down so mental performance training you've got tools tools mm. like visualization breathing self-talk goal setting etc cetera, etc cetera. those are tools tools are great they can help you get training to perform better and so you have that as like a crux and a, a foundation for sports psychology training to answer your question around, does it apply? For me, I break down leadership and performance. So when we're talking about performance, an athlete is similar to, let's call it a salesperson. A head coach is similar to a CEO. And so my work with a CEO or a head coach of a sports team are very similar. We're working on strategy, their vision, their mission. We're thinking about how they can unlock the people around them and their potential. Mm. And so in that sense, there's a lot of commonality. And actually earlier today, I have a group of people that I coach 
that are executives and they're in leadership positions. And we have a division one basketball coach on there. We have an athletic director on there. So there's a little bit of blending because they're all thinking about how they can show up for their people. Salespeople and athletes are much more focused on executing. And for me, sure, the greatest performers, I know you're a Steve Nash fan, right? Like Steve Nash was always trying to make everyone around him better. And oh, by the way, we'll see now how he does as a head coach. And I think part of what will make him successful as a head coach is that he was also thinking strategically. He was also thinking about the culture and the organization. Uh, and I think most point guards are thinking similarly to a head coach. But Kobe Bryant, who's another guy that I know you study, like he was an executor. And he even admitted that his leadership when he was younger, maybe he didn't have great skills in that department. And it would have been interesting if Kobe was still around, how he would be as a CEO um, because he's such a creative, he's such an innovator. And so I make distinctions there between someone who is performing and somebody who is leading. And it doesn't mean that a great performer can't also be a great leader, but I think the skills required are, are, are slightly different. Um, one's based on execution, the other is based on strategy. So let's break those down even further. I love that. Um, and I'm impressed by the research you've done on me, my man. Jeez, you know, you know my f- two favorite players. Um, in terms of like casting a vision and strategy, what are some low-hanging fruit or, or some like common things that you often work with with your clients in terms of like, let's drill this in before you can even kind of, uh, you know, get, get the ball rolling, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'd love to break down Nash and Kobe with you at some point if we can do that. Let's just yeah, put a pin would, in that. I'd love to. They're probably the two guys that I, in basketball, are, are most curious about and, mm. and love to study. All right, so where do we start? With leaders, mission, what's their why, right? Simon Sinek, start with why. Why do you do what you do? And that can be helpful for performers as well. But for leaders, we're really working on their values, Values drive behavior. What are the things that are core to them? When you ask me who I am, I really started listing my values because that is who I am. Uh, And the best example I give on that is Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski played the same position for the same team. They're both these big, strong, good-looking dudes, dudes, successful in their sport. Their value system was very different. Yeah. Who who they were, very different. I think that's kind of clear. All right. So we want to get clear on what your mission is. What's your why? What are your values? What's your philosophy, which I call your how, right? How do I want to show up? And that usually you can, you can do an exercise to find out about who inspires somebody, who do they aspire to be? And that will tell you a lot about their philosophy. Mm. And then their vision is really what they want. So for some of the leaders I work with, they want to be a CEO. For some, they want to be a head coach. For others, they just want to be really good at what they do and be home for dinner for their family. For some, they want to make $20 million. For others, they want to start a nonprofit. The, the what doesn't matter to me, but having clarity around what I want, I think mm. is a good exercise to have. So to, to bring all that together, you start with values, then you go to mission, then you go to philosophy, then you go to vision. So when I work with leaders, we usually go into that, but it's not one size fits all and each person's different. So I let them really drive where we go. And oftentimes we, we end up unpacking a lot of that stuff. So it sounds like, yeah, you have to get really clear on kind of truly all the, yeah, all that's going to go into this before you even get the ball rolling. It's like a, a huge clarity session so that it's almost like you're defining your North stars across the board so that you kind of, uh, you know what you're aiming at, if that makes sense. Well, I would go back actually. So the way I work is the first yeah. meeting, the first meeting is almost therapy ish, even though I'm not a therapist, but I want to know how you became you. 
And I want to know your story because our childhood does impact how we show up today. So meeting one, we're going to find out who you are, like, and how you became you. So we're looking backwards. Meeting two, I usually have them take some assessments. So let's get some data and uh, let's use some analytics to find out what some of your tendencies are and maybe some blind spots. And let's try to unpack that. And then the rest of the meeting is really going to be driven by them. So that's where then we'd get into values, the mission, the vision, the philosophy, that sort of stuff. Um, and I say all that to say, my job is to ask questions, to listen and to connect dots and to share what I'm noticing and what I'm hearing. Uh, and that's specific around the executive coaching. On the mental performance side, it's more using those tools that I mentioned earlier. It may be identifying their mission. I think most people figuring out why you do what you do is a really big thing. I know you played basketball, you got hurt, perhaps an identity crisis, uh, like not understanding why you do what you do and only doing it because you're good at it mm. can be a recipe, an, an unhealthy recipe. So understanding the why can be helpful for performers. And some of the stuff does overlap, but I, I have a program I created where we work on all of those tools and we help use those tools so that they can perform um, mm. at the highest of their potential. So um, yeah. there are slight differences. And the last thing I'll say is the book that I wrote provides a framework and it essentially suggests that your mindset for preparation is different than your mindset for performance. And it's actually helpful for leaders and performers. So the book was written for both of these um, arenas. Hmm. And essentially there's nine shifts that the book focuses on to have people think about how they show up in preparation and how they show up in performance and understanding that those are different. So oftentimes when I work with people, we'll talk about how they need to shift their mind from preparation to performance. Mm, I love that. And I love the reflection aspect of that and how that, you know, doing the proper and thorough reflection on your life, who you are, what you want, what you're about, how that actually translates to results. Uh, in terms of like executing, what is a, you know, I have a plan. I know who I am. I know my why. What is a common roadblock with, I know the things I need to do. What, what might get in my way in terms of, I guess that falls into the, the, the bucket of um, preparation. Like what, what keeps in your, in your perspective, like people from preparing the way they should. Yeah. I actually think it's, it's less for most people. It's actually less preparation. It's more performance. And yeah. so let's break, break down the, these shifts that I talk about humble in preparation and arrogant in performance in preparation, focusing on work and in performance, focusing on play in preparation, focusing on the future in performance, focusing on present in preparation, being perfectionistic and in performance, being adaptable in preparation, analyzing in performance, focusing on instinct. That's five. I could keep going, but I don't want to bore your audience. Um, but these shifts that, that, that often need to take place. If you look at the Kobe's or the Nash's or the LeBron's or whoever you want to focus on, You'll notice that in preparation, they might have that perfectionism, but they're adaptable in performance. Kobe is such a good example because we all know him as the Black Mamba when he got between the lines, which by the way, you know, he created his own alter ego. Like the dude created the Black Mamba when he got accused of sexual assault because he knew when he stepped into the arena, he couldn't worry about how others perceived him and saw him. He just needed to be a killer and he needed to have some arrogance and believe that he was important. Uh, and have an exaggerated sense of self between the lines. But outside the lines, the dude was waking up at 5 a.m., meditating, training his mind and his body. When he had tore his Achilles, he did crazy stuff to rehabilitate. 
when he got older and lost his athleticism, he went and trained with Akeem Olajuwon to work on his footwork so he could play in the post. That takes humble preparation. So too often our society says, humble good, arrogance bad. Yet if you study a lot of the elite performers, you will notice that they actually step into arrogance when they are performing and then shift their mind back to humility and preparation. And I've got nine of these shifts. And Kobe, I mean, Nash too, like, dude, what makes a Canadian that like grew up playing soccer going to Santa Clara because that's the only school that wants him think that he could play in the NBA and actually become a two-time MVP. I've been around coaches who have spent time with Nash, um, like Jay Triano, who coached him at the Canadian national team. And Jay was like, yeah, when Nash got between the lines, he believed he was amazing. But yeah. you see Nash is humble because when he's off the court, he's soft-spoken. He, 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 he has a different persona, but when he's between the lines, he didn't believe that he, was any worse than any point guard that he played against. He didn't believe, oh, I'm, I'm not as athletic or I'm not this. The dude believed he could control the entire game and had the game on the string. So yeah. um, I, I just think that these shifts are essential and we don't talk about them enough. What is the – let's talk about like performance anxiety, pre-performance anxiety, and then in performance like you're, you're maybe a little tight when you want to be loose, you know. Uh, I've heard you touch on this before. Um, you know, even with, so, you know, basketball, this was, I, I prepared relentlessly, but then when it came game time, it was all about how can I just get myself to be comfortable and to trust my preparation? That's it. I just want to forget. I want to be present. And I know you talk about this and, and I kind of take those, uh, those ethos and try to apply them now to like something as simple as podcasting. Like I could do all the research in the world about Brian, but then when it comes time to talk to you, I don't want to be glued to my notes. I want to just trust the flow of this conversation. So that's easier said than done. How, wh- why is that difficult? What's going on with pre-performance nerves, performance anxiety, and kind of how can we become more loose in those moments? And that's why I said earlier that I think it's more performance for most people than Yeah, people. yeah. If you're an athlete, think about how much time you spend preparing. It, you spend so much time preparing. And then the game, like, you know, if you're playing a lot on a college basketball team, you're playing 30 minutes a game. If you're playing a lot in the NBA these days, you're playing 30 minutes a game. So we spend so much time preparing and experimenting and perfecting and getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Like these are things that we do. But when we're performing, if we stay uncomfortable or we're experimenting, you're, you're not trusting your process. You're not comfortable and it's going to get in the way of your performance. So to me, if you study a lot of the elite performers, they have habits and routines on game day to get themselves as comfortable as they possibly can be and will create processes so that they can trust their process. You experiment in preparation so that you're never going to shoot a shot in a game that you haven't already taken. And the issue is when people start trying to experiment in a performance or when they step into that uncomfort or the discomfort in performance. Additionally, a lot of elite performers will recognize what you might think as discomfort and they'll recognize it as excitement. And they might say, oh yeah, I'm nervous. That's because I'm excited to be here. Like, yeah, this is the NBA finals or this is the playoffs. Like, hell yeah. And so they're interpreting it as comfortable when someone else might be interpreting it as discomfort. And and so to me, the interpretation is so key and crucial. Mm. And that's why the self-talk and the dialogue we have with ourselves is is huge. That's why routines are, are helpful because it allows us to get into a space to prime our mind, to prime our body, to go perform. We stretch, we do all this stuff physically 
the best performers in the world, they, they get into a routine to get themselves comfortable so that when they're between the lines, they can trust their process. Whether they go 0 for 5 or they're 5 for 5, they can stick with their process. But last thing I'll say, you had an injury and that derails your basketball career. And there's probably this identity crisis. Who am I without basketball? And I think one of the things you'll notice about a Nash or a Kobe, they were as obsessed with basketball as anyone, right? They, they were obsessed with it but their identity wasn't tied to the outcome of basketball. Their identity was tied to the art, the artistry that they approached basketball with the work ethic, the curiosity, the drive, the desire to compete. That is what, who they were. It wasn't that they were MVPs. That was a product. That was an outcome of, of who they were identity wise. And I think that's one of the reasons Kobe was transitioning so nicely out of basketball and I think that's one of the reasons you'll see Steve Nash transition nicely uh, to coaching because if it's about the outcome as a coach, you're going to be pretty miserable for a long, long time. Uh, mm. It's going to be tough for you because it's, it's got to be process oriented as it relates to performance. Mm. Man, I love all of that. And um, so I'm, I'm putting my, myself in the shoes of the listener and they're like, okay, I get that. That sounds good. Like prepare like a pro, prepare like these these greats do. Almost trigger yourself into a state of performance. Have your rituals, have your cues. What else is there that I can take all that you just said? What can I do with this? Like what? where would you point me? At the end of, you know, at the, when we wrap up this talk, I'll definitely uh, have you let me know where people can buy your book because I think, you know, obviously you're going to go into way more depth about that in your book. But where can we, what can we do with this information? Where can we actually start seeing, um, you know, some, some things change our prep, our, uh, our performance, you know, and I'm thinking outside of even sport right now, because, um, the sports container is so almost pure, but outside of sports, it gets a little bit more, the lines get blurred a little bit more. So what can we do with this? Yeah. So let's go into maybe arrogant performance and how do you bring out arrogance? And I use that word instead of confidence. I understand that that word can rub people the wrong way. We've all been around arrogant jerks and people that are arrogant all the time, and they're not, they're not fun to be around. Um, but when you're between the lines, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. And it has to be an unwavering belief. And it can't, you can't lose the, the faith that you have in yourself if you're 0 for 5. And same thing in, in sales. If I, you know, when I worked in sales, I'd have five people slam a door on me. I can't be like, oh, well, I'm not competent and capable. I need to keep going and, and keep working at it. So what do we do with that? Let's just use humble in preparation. So humble in preparation, write down weaknesses that you have, create five weaknesses, and then think about what you can do to work on those weaknesses. Uh, on the other side, arrogance, write down, you know, why you are competent or why you are great at something and create an affirmation. I always talked about having a grandma in your back pocket. For me, my grandma growing up when I played sports, she'd be, she'd think I was the greatest regardless of how many goals I scored in soccer or how many buckets I got in basketball or how many hits I got in baseball. You have to have something that's unwavering and unconditional. So whoever you can think of to have in your back pocket. Yeah, sports analogy, one of the things that athletes are great at is saying my bad when they make a mistake. How about my good? When you make a three, you don't have to say it out loud, but say to yourself, yeah, my good, I got this. And if you miss it, let's go on to the next shot. There's body language stuff, right? Power posing. Amy Cuddy has a TED Talk in a best-selling book where she talks about thinking about your body language and what you can do to, to embrace a certain type of body language. Highlight reels. You can have highlight reels to help develop your mindset for performance. Uh, I know you like to journal, right? So 
reflecting and, and journaling. What could I have done better? What could I have done differently? Be humble in that process. Um, gratitude is another thing for performance. I had a client once who would read a letter from uh, his grandparent who passed away and reminded him why he played basketball for that grandparent so that he could get into a place of comfort for performance. So I'm giving you some of these, but um, I think there's a world of tools that you can use that are how-tos. In the book, every chapter ends with how-tos that you can use. There's a workbook that I put together that you can download on my website that can mm. give you even more. To me, how-tos like, are great. Uh, they're important, but I'd also encourage people to create their own how-tos. So I definitely give you plenty, um, but think about what your craft is and what do you need to show up for your preparation and how is it different from performance? I focus on nine shifts. I had like 35 of these. Um, there's ones that I probably didn't even think of that are relevant for you. Like you mm. said, podcasting. Like for podcasting, you, you said this, if you over-prepare and you stick to your notes, you miss the present moment where there's an opportunity to ask a question that you couldn't have thought of just from your preparation. And that lack of adaptability can hurt you. So perfectionistic preparation is, I did the same thing. Like I listened to your podcast before. I wanted to know everything I could. And you may say something that intrigues me now and I need to be able to adjust. So the ability to be perfectionistic and adaptable is massive. You talked about the some of the best athletes doing like a pregame routine. And I sometimes wonder, um, you know, because I was so disciplined in that and that really helped me get in that flow state. And um, I actually posted a, a poll on my Instagram if anybody would have any questions for you. And one of the people, Alan at... Alan Nafa, I'm just plugging him right now because it was a good question. He said, how can we force a flow state? And for me, that was uh, that was something, you know, because basketball is really easy. I could do my routine. I could get my body going. I could do the same things. But in a, in a business perspective, maybe some of the executives you work with, how and, and you just wrote a book. And so I'm assuming you were deep in flow state for that. So how can, how can I and how can we get ourselves in this flow state, this present state where we're performing highly? How can we almost like trigger that? Do you have any... Um, tangibles for that. Yeah. So flow state comes from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, one of the best names of all time who studied this, I think at Florida state. Um, and I also love the eyes off theory, which is individual zone of optimal functioning. So this idea that we all have this zone that we can get into and for each person, it's different. Some people might need to be pumped up. Others need to calm themselves down. I think for the book you asked about, like, how did you get yourself in the flow state? I mixed it up. I have a cabin with no internet that I went to and I would go, you know, spend a day there and write. There were times where I sent deadlines for myself um, and I would be writing as we were on our way to dinner at, to my parents' house. My wife drove and I wrote. Um, there were times where I wrote late at night. So I'm not the greatest when it comes to just discipline. Every morning I do X, every evening I do Y. Um, for you, that may work. Um, but I think realizing what's in your control, what's out of your control is really helpful creating a checklist for yourself. What are the things I want to do for performance? And like one example, if we're talking about flow state is, are we looking at something as a challenge or as a threat? So a, a checklist could be that no matter what happens today, I'm going to look at everything as a challenge and I'm not going to be threatened because there's some good science around if you interpret something as a challenge, physiologically, your body actually reacts differently. There's progressive muscle wow. relaxation. There's music. There's all kinds of things you can do to prime your mind to get into that flow state. And what I would say is it's not always going to be there. So like flow state often occurs when we're being challenged, when we're 
competing against somebody who's a little bit better than us um, when we're typically calm. But there is a wicked environment that we're all in right now called COVID that is really challenging for people. And so the reality is I wasn't always in the flow state when I was writing. And that's okay. Like sometimes I might be at 70% and I need to give 100% of my 70% and I'm not in the flow state. Right now, Max, I am not in the flow state. Let me tell you about my night last night. I have this issue with my elbow. I don't know if you can see it, but it's inflamed right now. Like I have gout in my elbow, which means that every time I turned over in bed last night, my elbow hurt. Also, I have a three and a half year old daughter who decided that she didn't want to sleep in her own room last night. So she decided to sleep in our room where she was in the floor, on the floor. I did not get a good night's sleep last night at all. And the night before I didn't either because this elbow was hurting me. Okay. Like, LeBron, I know you, 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 you value your sleep. I love the science of sleep. I think it's really important. And there are going to be times in our life where we are not going to be at our optimal functioning. Yeah. And we still have to find a way to be at our best and do the best we can with what we've got. And mm. sometimes there are moments, whether it's Brett Favre after his father passed away uh, and being on Monday Night Football and having one of the best games of his performance, or Isaiah Thomas when he was with the Pistons and he sprained his ankle and drops like 20-some points in the fourth quarter of a playoff game, or Torrey Smith, who I actually uh, know pretty well, played for the Baltimore Ravens and played on Sunday Night Football after his brother was killed and had an amazing performance. You'd be surprised how resilient human beings can be mm -hmm. if we focus on what we can control, if we step into that space, and sometimes acknowledge that bad things happen, and sometimes we're not at our best, and we can still perform even when we're not at our best. I value sleep. I value nutrition. I value all the things that you need to do to prime your mind and body to be at your best, and you can still perform really, really well. When those things aren't there, I hope I'm doing that right now. You totally are, man. I fucking love it. Uh, I love the distinction between this is a challenge over a threat. It's so such a distinction in the physiology. Like as you said that, I was like, like yes, like uh, when I can just make that subtle shift, and I haven't had that perfect vocabulary, but now I feel like I'll use that. Uh, it's such a big difference. Like, can I get through this, or is it like, oh, this is actually gonna pose a threat to my livelihood or who I am as a person? You know, you get so fearful. Um, and Max, think about what, give me like something that you think of that you might be threatened by. Dude, it's a, it's a podcast pod. I mean, it's like, that's the beautiful part about podcasts. And I've been open and honest about this is I get nervous before almost every single one. It's just like this, you know, I'm, I'm being vulnerable. I'm It is a performance in a way it's live, it's happening. And there are always people I respect like you, Brian. So, you know, I, I want to do it. It's this, I want to do a good job. And that's that. And my, my brain can kind of take that as a threat sometimes. Performance is the execution of actions that will be evaluated in some way. There is judgment involved in sports, man. And any performance, a doctor, a surgeon, a lawyer, um, a CEO giving a speech, like you're going to be judged by your actions. And that's scary. And your capacity to execute even in the face of that fear and that judgment and potential embarrassment or shame, it's difficult. So that's why I think that performance mind is so key. And if we do the preparation mind right, which is about the action or process of making ourselves ready and competent, improving, growing, developing, if we do that in the right way, we've earned the right to then perform without fear of judgment. And we know we may mess up, 
but we know it's not because we weren't prepared. Mm. And then there's this beautiful thing in sports called practice that sports gets right more so than a lot of other industries where it's an action of working on something repeatedly to become proficient and a great practice will involve both the preparation mind and the performance mind. So when you were training basketball players, I'm sure there was a piece where you're trying to perfect their footwork to get the Euro step down to be exactly what you want it to be. And they have to be able to do that in a hostile, rugged environment. So it's great if they can do it with nobody watching and with no one guarding them. But at some point, they need to be able to do it with a guy who's got a six foot eight wingspan and is lightning quick and trying to nudge them every time that they make their move. And so the ability to practice the preparation mind and the performance mind is huge. But to be honest, what I find, especially with pros, is what gets in the way more often than not is their performance mind because they bring their preparation mind into their performance. And you're Mm. using a great example. If you brought your preparation mind that you use to prepare for this podcast into this performance, flow state ain't happening, man. Because it's Mm. perfectionism, it's analyzing, it's reflecting, it's being critical. Those things are really helpful for you in preparation and it's what gets in the way for performance. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's like this detailed analytical like OCD approach to my preparation. I did this in basketball, I do this in um, podcasting and then it's like when you perform, can you let that go? Can you almost act like it didn't exist and just trust that it's there in the background? That's that's good, man. And um, I love how you touched on some of the professional athletes and how that's what they that's what they deal with. And um, it almost humanizes them. Is there any other things you could share with us that, you know, we look at professional athletes or even top executives and we think, oh, they got it all figured out. You know, what are, what are these high performers still struggling with? I don't work with uh, depression, um, but Dak Prescott coming out and saying what he's struggling with, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan. I mean, these guys are being very vulnerable and courageous from my perspective. Mm. I think it's a reminder that it doesn't discriminate. Like, humans have shit that they go through (laughs) and like they're not superhuman. And so I think the mistake we make is in thinking that they are Um, and they'll make mistakes when people are watching and they'll make mistakes when nobody are watching. And I think having grace and compassion is important. And uh, yeah, those are things that I think I've learned along the way. And, you know, for me, I'll work with pro athletes, but I'll work with anybody who's driven, curious, ambitious. And um, sports is beautiful. It's great. To me, it's simple. And like, I like complexity. I love the complexity of these guys. I love learning about the Nashes and the Kobe's of the world or the Tim Duncans and the guys who are thinking the game in a different way. I mean, LeBron is inspiring what he's doing at this age and what he's done to transform not just his body, but the way I think he interacts with the world. I think there's a guy who, cl- who clearly in Miami was bothered by judgment of others and tried to become a villain when he's not meant to be a villain. And to see him mature and have the weight of his sh- weight that was on his shoulders from the age of 15 or whatever it was, I'm inspired by that. And I think we all need a little inspiration in our life. I love it, Brian. I want to wrap up. I know you're. Uh, we got to wrap this up. I want to be cognizant of your time. Is there any other points you want to throw in as it regards to your book? If not, definitely tell us where we can get your book. I know it's coming out uh, very soon. Yeah, I think we covered enough. Um, hopefully, I gave people a taste of what it's about. Yeah. Before we started recording, I was telling you, up until the last couple of months, I hadn't really gone on the path to try to get myself out there. Perhaps you can teach me a thing or two about Instagram. It's just not my jam. Mm. I love Twitter, um, but I've never been big Instagram guy. Uh, and, and by the way, 
respect the people that do and know how to how to do it and do it in a way that's fulfilling. I've had clients and people that are on there that their impact and their ability to help people is, is huge. It's a balance, man. It's like a, it's a addictive platform. I think a little bit, it's definitely a quick hitting platform, but when you can do it right and do it in a balanced way, there's definitely a really beautiful thing about it where you can reach, you know, you can reach people where they are, you know, more people are on Instagram than anywhere else. So it's um yeah, it's a, it's a balance definitely that I'm always dancing with. So I wouldn't say I'm, I got it down, but <laughs> you might have to coach me. Cause I, like, I like Twitter. I like LinkedIn. Um, but the book, you can find it anywhere books are sold. It's out October 6th, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo. Um, just, you could Google Shift Your Mind. Uh, and I poured my soul into this thing, Max. Um, you know, I, I think professionally, I'm a coach. That's how I see myself. Um, I'm not a writer. And I spent about four years writing this book. And I hired a writing coach to help me with it because I just believe in coaching. And I believe that you should surround yourself with people that really know what they're doing. And she was huge for me, just helping me tease out the concepts and the ideas and drill down and organize them. So I think that's a big piece to my, my story and my journey. And then my dad read the book. And uh, recently he said to me, Brian, this book is not about the last four years, man. He's like, he didn't say, man, that's what I said. And he goes, this is like your life in here. And this is everything you learned throughout the last 30, how old am I? 36. Probably mm-hmm. didn't learn much the first two years. I uh, poured into the book, but whatever it is. And uh, yeah, I'm somebody who goes pretty all in when I do things. And so I'm hopeful and optimistic that I'll be able to impact people in a positive way. That's why I wrote the book. People ask, who's the book for? And I say anyone that's interested in growing, learning, developing, and cultivating their mindset. I'm excited uh, for you. Congratulations on that. And uh, that's the thing I love about books. It's not just, you know, like you said, the four years that go into that book. It's it's your whole life. And uh, for us to be able to take your whole life's wisdom and knowledge, and, and I'm sure you had to really refine that down and to be able to read that in a week or two weeks or whatever it is, is uh, it's a gift for us. So I'm excited to see. I'm going to plug it up uh, in the show notes. Last question I always ask is, what, have, what is a piece of advice or encouragement? you would give your 25 year old self? There's two pieces. Um, one I'll say for my 25 year old self. And then like then in that moment, and then another piece of advice for down the road. Okay. So one is the best advice I've ever received is to ask permission before giving advice. So mm. we're, we're, we're often too quick to just give advice without asking someone if they actually want the advice. And for me, when I ask someone, hey, do you want some feedback or would you like me to share some, something that I noticed or that I observed? And the person says yes, they're much more open and apt to take that information. Mm. When you just offer it and someone's not looking for it, they're much less likely to uh, embrace it. And I think early in my career, I wanted to give the advice because it would make me feel good. And I didn't think about the person who was receiving it. And so I think we all need to think about what's the purpose of giving the information. If you really want to help the person, then you need to think about, do they want it? And I think that's like the best advice I could give is to ask permission before giving advice and, and you asked for advice. So I gave it to you. Beautiful. The second piece is what a client said to me once, which is uh, take care of your marriage first and your kids second. And at the time I was probably 28 when I got that advice and I didn't have kids and I didn't really get what she meant. And now I do. 
because once you have kids, at least once I had kids, it was so easy to put all my energy toward them. And for me, it's not just taking care of my marriage first, but taking care of myself first. And I think too often we talk about servant leadership and we glorify it. And to me, if you're not taking care of yourself first, you're not going to be able to take care of anybody. So for me right now, that's a big thing, which is take care of my marriage first, make sure we're good. Uh, and then if we're good, we'll be able to better serve our kids. And I think that's a leadership thing too. If you take care of yourself first, you can then pour into your people. So that's mm. the other piece that uh, I'm glad I've learned along the way and I'm still trying to focus on. Brian, I love it. Great answers. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed this and I'm excited to see, uh, I'm excited to stay connected and talk sports again and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Max. That's it for today's show. Thank you guys for tuning in to my podcast. The fact that you listen to my show when there's so many other shows you could be listening to is very humbling. I'm so grateful for this small community. Reach out to me on Instagram if you want to say hi. Let me know what resonated with you. And if you want to support my work, share this episode with a friend, share my podcast in general with a friend, share your favorite episode with someone, and leave a review on Apple iTunes. That helps me grow. That helps me continue to get amazing guests and authors and allows me to extract the wisdom that's going to help our lives. So I'm so grateful for you. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode of Looking Up. Peace.